Welcome, fans, to the Superman homepage uh, commentary on Man of Steel. My name is Steve Yunus, and I'm joined by Scotty V. Hey, Scotty. Hello, Steve. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Now, we're about to uh, record the, our commentary for Man of Steel. Uh, we've done similar things to other Superman uh, movies and TV shows in the past. So, uh, without further ado... Uh, we're going to uh, talk our way through this movie, and I will do a countdown to let you know when to press play on your DVD or Blu-ray. Scotty and I are about to do the same thing. So on three, two, one, click. We have pressed play. And um, now, uh, oh, on mine I've got the uh, authorised reproduction. Uh, as I do. Uh, <laughs> it's on mine as well, so now we all know uh, that you're not allowed to pirate this movie. Mm-hmm. PG-13 um, rated in the US. The FBI will get me. I'm not sure who gets you in your in your town. <laughs> well, I'm watching the American version. Yeah. So here we go with the uh, the opening uh, logos of the companies, the, the Time Warner. I like the way that it rotates through the, the different logos using the Kryptonian, uh, you know, the writing and the, and the, the metallic stone type uh feel to the to the logos it's uh it's quite a cool little uh little opening they did i remember sitting uh on june 10th of 2013 in uh new york city uh, steve and i were at the world premiere and uh steve flew all the way over from australia and right after the superman celebration mm-hmm. and came and we watched it i remember when these came on i remember kind of getting chills and uh and just being really excited and uh uh, it's, uh, you know, it's very a subdued opening, but I, mm. but I like it. I remember missing the first few because I was tweeting my last tweet in the cinema, letting people know ah. that the movie was about to begin. But uh, here we go with Lara in uh, the throes of uh, pains of birth, giving birth, the first I had birth on Krypton for ages. No, I had no exception. I had no expectation that they were going to show me anything like this. Mm. Um, I, I thought... It was so great because it's so, it's such an emotional opening. It's so meaningful, um, and then you, you, of course you can see uh, Keylex and Keylor in the background there, which uh, at the time hadn't I didn't know yet that that's what it was. But uh, it, it's so great that uh, that they had those there. Now it's uh, you got Russell Crowe there as Jarrell and. Um... Ailet Zuro playing uh, Lara and were great casting choices, I thought. Uh, very good. Uh, you know, when I heard about Russell Crowe being cast, my uh, the joke I always make is that he told him that if he wasn't cast, he'd go. He was going to start throwing phones at people. But uh... <laughs> now we see this real, real thriving world of Krypton, which looks very different to what we've seen of Krypton in any other version. I was so happy that, and obviously they said it was a whole new thing and it wasn't connected to the old movies in in any way. But even in the comics uh, nowadays, you often see the crystallized version of of Krypton with the big ice buildings and everything's an ice wasteland. And I was so glad to see them step away from that because I remember other stories where Krypton was a thriving world with different climate zones and different animals and different creatures and different peoples instead of a few British people in a chamber of ice. Mm-hmm. 
And then we have the very dramatic uh, introduction of uh, General Zod and his uh, attempt at a coup. So incredible the way they mine, the way they just introduce Zod here. We see that he's, I mean, he's clearly a badass, but he's mm. also, uh, I think he has a point here. Um, at this moment, I don't necessarily think that it's about Zod wanting to have ultimate power. I think it's more about, uh, listen, uh, you, you guys have been arguing about what to do for so many years that now death is upon us and still nothing has been done. So I'm going to take it into my hands and do mm. it myself. Yeah, he definitely has, um, his motives seem to be clear in his mind as being the right thing to do, but um, obviously Jor-El doesn't agree with his methods or the fact that he's the one who wants to, you know, decide how Krypton goes forward on his own. So, uh, although Jor-El does a very similar thing. Well, Jor-El doesn't go about killing anyone, that's for sure. No, uh, but... but uh, you, you... You could make the argument that Jor-El is almost as single-minded as, as the rest of the council because he's arguing with them and yelling mm. at them and saying we need to do something, but he's not actually stepping forward and doing anything. So Zod comes in and says, all right, enough of this. You're not going to listen to the smartest guy on the planet and do something. Uh, the time has come where something needs to be done here. Now, I was a little bit surprised at how well Jor-El's fighting skills were honed uh... He seems to have more military training than the military themselves. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think about it, too. When coming up here, we're going to see him, you know, pretty much take out Zod. Mm. And uh, I, I thought, you know, Zod was bred to be the military leader of Krypton, and jor is bred to be a scientist. So why does he have any fighting ability? But uh, obviously, it's really cool that he does. Now, how amazing was this vista of the uh, civil war going on at the moment and just such a rich landscape of fighting and lighting and explosions and then you get Haraka uh, who comes to, to for Jarrell to uh, to escape and and fly off which was just an amazing visual it's uh, I mean when you watch it you mentioned it before it's it's clear that Krypton has a lot of stuff going on. It's not just this frozen wasteland with one building. But it also has this rigid, uh, rib-like underground network of things. They've obviously really, you know, destroyed Krypton's landscape or mined it so far that it's almost just rigid bone-like structures, ribs, uh, which they talk about in the making of. Uh, so uh, it's really interesting to see the depth of history that they put into uh, the creation of Krypton and then we get this uh, this underwater sequence, and the the music here really sets the tone. Uh, great to see Jor-El as a man of action. I think, uh, as much as he may be single-minded, as much as he may be breaking the rules in terms of what they're used to doing on Krypton, it's so just great to see him running around leaping off flying dragons and swimming in water and fighting battles and you know doing what he has to do he knows it's too late it doesn't even matter what zod does it doesn't even matter if the military coup succeeds or not he knows that 
they've been arguing with him far too long and that it's too late. And now I think almost as a measure of guilt because he acts sooner, he's in a desperate situation and he's doing what has to be done. Now we have him holding the uh, the codex or the skull that is the codex is embedded and ingrained in or is taken from uh, was one of my questions that uh, was actually used in the live fan event uh, with Zack Snyder indicating to us that that skull was probably from uh, an ancestor of a Kryptonian ancestor that they thought was the height of their evolution and from which they were taking the DNA of their future uh, children from. The sequence is great. I mean, it's it's almost like a Star Wars sequence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I heard someone complain that it was too much like Avatar or they were copying from too many other sources and it didn't feel like Krypton. I mean, I'm not sure if you feel like Krypton needs to be the crystallized Richard Donner version, then that probably is true. But uh, certainly science fiction movies in the past have leaned on other science fiction movies and everything advances and make movies you you borrow from other sources and you have ideas of what it should look like and i think yeah uh, in avatar they did fly on these little beasts or whatever that are kind of like haraka uh, but uh, i think it's a again a vivid world and and it makes sense that they would have an advanced war going on with with weaponry and explosions mm. now i like when Jarrell says he that seemingly intelligent uh, species <laughs> when he's talking about Earth. And did you notice a little bit earlier the, uh, the exploded moon in the background there, which is, uh, you know, comic book fans would recognise as uh, a piece of history in the comic books of one of Krypton's moons being destroyed by one of the villains of, uh, of Krypton and um, lots of different little things there, little Easter eggs for fans of the character over 75 years to, to look back at. And you look in the background there, Jarrell's Obviously, got a, you know lots of different experiments he's used in the past, so it's very fleshed out. And what I liked about this sequence was that Lara was as much involved with the uh, sending off of Kal-el to Earth uh, as Jor-el was. You know, she knew just as much about the the computerized systems, the finding the planet, launching the rocket as she does. So uh, she's just as much involved. This is obviously a partnership between them, and a, a decision between them. She's a little bit more the emotional one, it seems like, which I think would be natural, you know, um, whatever their birth cycle is, uh, nine months for Earthlings, obviously, uh, bonding with the child, having a child, and uh, and then, of course, on Krypton, having no births for centuries, a live birth, and just such a, uh, obviously, a connection to your child, and mm-hmm. um, uh, but Jor-El obviously knows that it's the only way to save him. And she knows as well, but uh, I've 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 fielded some complaints from people that this whole idea is against canon. It's not in the uh, book. It never happened this way. Uh, how can he fuse all the DNA of Krypton into Kal El? And why did they have to do that? And the Codex issue. And what is all this? And why couldn't they just make it a straightforward story about him escaping from the planet before it exploded? That's you know every every incarnation tell has its own little thing. Uh, Donna's version had a you know a totally different Krypton, a totally different Fortress of Solitude. Uh, so each each director, each writer, 
comes in with their own little thing and uh, this is their version of it and I felt it enriched things a little bit made uh, the sending of Kal-El a little bit more important to Krypton's history and future and uh, here we have a launch that is so different to uh, what we've seen in other incarnations and uh, as it's uh, about to, to go off uh, Jor-El's, uh, sorry, uh, Zod's forces are uh, approaching Jor-El having discovered that he has stolen the Codex and they're about to force their way into his uh, citadel. I love these insect-like ships that they fly in. Uh, the one that comes to Earth later on is kind of like a flea. Mm, these are uh, these are like I don't know flies or something along those lines. And Lara's there, about to uh, set the rocket off in motion, where uh, Zod uh, is not happy about what's happening, and uh, his uh, subcommander Fayora uh, lets him know that they've. Uh, discover that there is a rocket about to be launched from within the Citadel. Yeah, the effects in this film are just uh, stunning to me. Uh, uh, you know, if you watch some of the behind-the-scenes things, anytime they're wearing armor, which is pretty much the entire time for Feora, Zod, and the other Kryptonians, uh, there are a few moments where Zod is just in his bodysuit, but uh, for the most part, he's in the armor, and it's all motion capture. They didn't actually have any armor. So all the walking around is all previous stuff after the fact, which is why, obviously, it took another year and a half to finish the movie after photography was completed. Mm. Interestingly, uh, uh, Fiora's was... Uh, she actually wore her costume, but uh, Zod was most of the time in what he called pyjamas, which was mm-hmm. his motion capture uh, suit that uh, was pretty much just a... Uh, a jumpsuit that uh, he wore and tried to imagine where his yeah, his Kryptonian armor was uh, was situated. But uh, yeah, it's amazing. You don't really even notice that it is computer graphics generated. Uh, the Zod's costume most of the time. Now, I'm not sure about this actual fight sequence because it seems like they would have to have something on their arm arms and legs in order to have the buffer between where their body would be and where the armor would be in order to make the hits. Mm. But it was interesting to hear about uh, the fight sequences and because Russell Crowe's had so many different uh, movies where he's done boxing or what have it before, he was a bit more proficient in that, uh, in that aspect of the filming and, uh, here we have Zod telling Lara, trying to persuade her not to send off the rocket, but she knows uh, what the situation is. She does it anyway. Heresy! I uh, must not have seen that uh, information uh, that Feora actually wore armor through most of the movie. I, I did not. Obviously, it's not heavy armor, whatever she must have been wearing, but... Uh, the behind-the-scenes footage I watched was on, I think it was a combination of, they, they called it the the stunts and stuff, and they showed how Michael Shannon was walking around in that black suit with some lines on it and some of the motion capture stuff. And I didn't really see uh, Feora too much in that, but they did show them working out and, and how much they had to, uh, you know, 
change their everyday exercise routines and uh, they even showed her lifting heavy weights and uh, 190 some pounds or something i don't even think i could lift 190 some pounds uh, <laughs> uh, on a regular basis so she's clearly very strong now you see that uh, zod was you know he, well he saw the necessity he obviously his passion and anger uh, to kill his one-time friend was something that he almost regrets in a way, but, you know, he's a man of of action in that he has to do what he's bred to do, and, well, he tries to bring down Kal-El's ship, but uh, he, the, the ruling, well, the government of Krypton has obviously uh, won the day in the Civil War, and uh, Zod and his crew are forced to uh, to be captured and uh, sentenced. I love that background. Yeah, his, uh, his little coup didn't seem to uh, ever have a chance of succeeding, really, based on how easy it was for him to be taken back into custody. Mm. I love this uh, Michael Shannon's performance here. Yeah, the passion and the, the anger and, you know, just his his mannerisms compared to the regal and, you know, um, uppity stance of the Kryptonian Council and them and their suits and their headdresses and, and here he is spitting at them and, you know, just being so violent in his passion and his anger. There's obviously been quite a bit of time in between these because it's not time, but, you know, days. I mean, this looks like it's happened within a few minutes, but Lara's, you know, in uh, formal uh, clothing there. She's part of the ruling council's decision to send these, uh, send Zod and his crew to the Phantom Zone in the Black Zero. And then uh, even after they're sent, uh, you know, Lara's in another, her hair's different again. And so obviously there's some time passed. Uh, she's obviously buried, or whatever they do, uh, with Jorel, and she's got his uh, armor there that uh, you know as a memory of him. So there's obviously time has passed in between these events. Um, for whatever reason, Zack Snyder chose not to use like fade outs or fade to black to indicate time passing, which later in the film had a few people confused or upset about you know certain jokes being told after certain events and things like that because it seemed like no time had passed at all. I was going to mention that when you were talking about the time passing by it, not using the fades or blackouts or anything like that did cause uh, quite a few people to be disheartened by the ending and some of the some of the ways it went about. And also, you know, in seeing this scene and seeing how it seems to take only minutes for them to be not only sentenced, but, uh, you know, arrested, sentenced and then launched into space and closed up in the Phantom Zone. But it, but it again, as you say, must have taken um, many days, uh, probably not months, because Jorel was already saying that it was too late. So they mm. didn't really have time to make any other plans. But time, yes. And again, here between the between the sentencing and then them being sent into space, time must have gone by again. And here as well, definitely, definitely. I mean, as I said, Lara is looking totally different to what she was in the previous scene. Uh, different costume, different hair, everything, and here we have the destruction of Krypton, and 
um, amazing to see just the world being ripped apart by explosions that are very uh, similar or bring back memories of Superman the Animated Series and the way uh, jets of, of lava and explosions just came up in, in, in jets. I love the way it kind of implodes on itself here in space. Mm-hmm. Sucks itself in before it explodes. And then almost stays in a uh, form of stasis, you know, things only exploding to a certain extent. And then there's uh, a light within, which I think they called something like a, you know, um, a star of some kind in the making of. Uh, and I love the way they used, um, you know, like uh, stargates or whatever you like to call them, portals, uh, black holes yeah. to transport the spaceship through space. Because obviously it's not going to be able to make that distance um, just by flying straight through space. They've got to use almost like the Phantom Zone, you know, open up a portal, let it through, and then let it come out another another hole uh, elsewhere in space. And we don't actually get to see Kal-El's spaceship land in Smallville. There's the, the farmhouse, and there's the, the uh, you know, the, the vistas of, of, the, of the farms, but uh, the landing splashes down to a change of scene to a grown-up Clark Kent uh, on a fisherman's boat. It was. I like actually like the way they did it. It was an interesting way to jump around. Uh, we're going to see flashbacks later on of, of a younger Clark, but it's it's kind of a neat change in that everybody had been saying for years that the Donner version of Krypton and his arrival on Earth was so perfectly done. How could you really top that, or why would you want to do a cover exactly the same ground? And I think the stuff on Krypton is different enough. And, and so much more expansive than what was in the Donner version, that that made sense. Whereas the arrival on Krypton, the fi- or on Earth, and the Kents finding him and raising him and taking him in, uh, we've not only seen in the Donner films, but we saw on Smallville very recently over a 10-year period. I love how they call him Greenhorn. <laughs> And uh, he's obviously going off to uh, try to see what he can do aboard this uh, exploding uh, oil rig. And uh, it was interesting to see the making of, to see how they did that whole ripping of the door thing. And and obviously the flames there on him are computer graphics flames, where the flames everywhere else are real physical flames that um, were there to, to walk through and pass. And I was actually really amazed at how much real footage was filmed uh, for a lot of the movie. You know, you, Obviously, computer graphics are there to join certain things together and to make certain feats possible, but landings and takeoffs and you know flights and, and things were all done in camera, which was uh, fantastic to see and which made it even more believable. They had a lot of uh, practical effects and they had a lot of actual real-world locations. Much of uh, the inside interiors of ships and things were actually built, then obviously they had to add on and make them uh, more extensive, extensive by using the CGI. But, uh, yeah, it's, it makes it feel much more authentic. And if you have an actual base that your characters are standing on and some, some walls and some physical effects that are actually there around them, and then you, then you paint in the effects after, I think it makes it look obviously much more real and as if we're actually in this world that we're being. Yeah, and it helps their performance as well. And, uh, and here we have an underwater sequence again, which uh, Henry Cavill 
in the uh, in his interviews says is one of was one of his um, most memorable scenes because he had this moment of clarity of of peace being underwater where everything would, was so chaotic in most of the rest of the filming. Uh, but here we have, we have one of those flashback sequences you mentioned. I love the way Clark's uh, seems to be realizing all of his extrasensory powers all at once here. Mm-hmm. And obviously it would freak him out and he's you know seeing through to the teacher's heart and her brain and hearing uh, you know simple things as the strumming of someone's fingers on a desk. Um, and he's, you know, obviously doesn't understand it and decides to take off down the hallway. Mm, freaks out a little bit as any little kid would at something that they don't understand. And, uh, yes, this teacher is not the greatest teacher, if you ask me. She's a bit, uh, you know. Well, I, apparently she gets what she deserves here then, I guess. <laughs> a bit of a hot hand. but uh, I, You know, I'm reminded of the time lapses again that uh, Zack Snyder doesn't really use any of the traditional filmmakers methods to show us that time has gone by. Clark runs out of the room, goes into there and immediately we see the teacher pounding on the door and she says, I've called your mother. Mm. But then two seconds later, Martha's running down the hallway. So clearly there must've been some time, even if the Kent farmhouse is right down the block, it would take longer than from the pounding on the door to Martha being there for her to actually get there. So again, we have a situation where I think he just wants to keep the filming going. He just wants to keep the story moving. Mm. Uh, and, and so we don't really see the passage of time, but there must've been again, uh, 20 minutes, half an hour of time that went by. And I have to add in here that I love Diane Lane as Martha Kent. I just had, she just had this, so this warmth to her, this realism to her that, uh, you know, really made me uh, warm to the, the role of Martha Kent. I thought she was fantastic. I mean, she's a great actress. I've loved her in a lot of different movies uh, since seeing her in The Outsiders back when she was only a teen. But, um, you know, it's, I just thought she was great, well, very well cast as Martha Kent. Now, we have this sequence of Clark coming out of the water after having swum from the ocean uh, coming on shore, and this was a very important scene for Zack Snyder and for Henry Cavill to show people just how built Henry Cavill really was. Uh, it was, you know, that the, the the shape and form of Superman was a real man underneath. Uh, whether there was any padding necessary for the suit once it was put on, because it compresses muscles that are there, you get to see that that is really Henry Cavill. That is, that that's that's how big he really is. Well, he went from, uh, I think at the beginning, when we're talking about the workouts in the Jim Jones, uh, whatever it was, uh, workout system, he went from, uh, you know, being able to free 190 or something to over 400 pounds for, for the uh, kind of the, the, I don't know, the jerk and lift or whatever it is uh, from the from the floor up to the shoulders and then up over the head. Now, whether or not, know- sorry, I was just going to say, whether or not we agree on... Clark Kent stealing somebody's clothes is uh, neither here nor there, I guess. A lot of people weren't uh, very happy with the fact that uh, he took that man's clothing and boots from the back of his truck. Yeah, I, uh, when I was watching it, I, I, it did occur to me, and I, I, I knew that for some people it would be a point of contention, but uh, it's kind of a necessity in that situation. He doesn't want to be 
discovered as the man that was at the uh, oil rig and he can't run around the city naked. Hmm. He doesn't necessarily have any money on him at that point in time either. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I noticed... Uh, that I did not, in the three times I saw it in the theater, I did not catch, sometimes in the theater the sound is so kind of quiet with voices but overpowering with explosions and things that you can't hear some of the subtle nuances. I found myself hearing things I didn't hear when I had seen it before. And uh, when Martha was talking to him in the hallway when he was in the closet and saying, Clark, you know, and then it switched back to him in the water, I heard a whisper, Clark, Again, but it sounded like a male voice. I'm, I'm sure it probably wasn't, but uh, I know people have said that the whales signify that Arthur, uh, Aquaman, is somewhere under the water and that he has something to do. You know, uh, so certainly hearing that, I was like, hey, maybe that was uh, maybe that was Aquaman <laughs> helping to wake him up. That. Uh, I thought it was just Martha's whisper, but uh, here we have young Clark Kent uh, revealing his powers. Uh, to uh, his classmate, who uh, that's Lana, who goes to the back of the bus, and, and then he ends up bringing out uh, Pete Ross, uh, who was there he is. drowning. So uh, there we have Pete, it. Uh, Pete Ross, the bully, mm, who from that point onward seems to have changed his mind about Clark Kent. But <laughs> I love this. His mother's uh, reaction. She thinks it's a. Uh, Act of God, she says. Providence. <laughs> I like uh, Kevin Costner's reaction to her too. Uh, he kind of <laughs> he doesn't laugh straight out at her, but he. Uh, yeah, he and Martha he just kind, of kind of have this knowing look between them. Knows that she's being silly. Now, a lot of problem people had a problem with uh, Jonathan Kent's anger towards Clark and his response to his question here about what he should have done. But um, even from the trailer when we saw that, people were saying, what, Jonathan Kent would never say that, you know, maybe he should let them die. But uh, he obviously says that, he continues on saying that there's a lot at stake here, not just their lives or the lives of those around them, but the whole of the human race. Well, there's going to be a lot, you know, riding on him coming out. He says our notions of what we believe and, and what our place is in the universe and, and what else is out there. And, uh, and I could certainly see in a more realistic setting, a father, a mother, people that are tasked with raising a superpowered child wouldn't necessarily know exactly how they should act or exactly what they should do. It's kind of a learning process as they go on. Mm, definitely. There's no manual for raising an alien child. Or any child, but now you got to add in that he has these superpowers. Dylan Sprayberry did a pretty good job, I thought, as young Clark Kent. Uh, he, uh, he, he played his part well. I think he's very believable as a, you know, in this next scene here where he says, you know, I don't want to be uh, the answer to whether we're alone in the universe or not. I just want to be your son. Can I just keep pretending to be your son? And then, of course probably the most touching moment from from uh kevin costner when they hug and he says you are my son and uh uh, you know they raised him from a baby so something i've said for many many years why wouldn't he be clark kent why would he why would clark kent be the disguise why not the other way around and he brings out the kryptonian usb key that's right they're going to use it in their (laughs) computer later 
But uh, in the behind-the-scenes things, uh, Dylan Sprayery was saying uh, that rocket ship was there. It was just amazing, the detail that, you know, he had to stand there in front of it and see it. And, um, and you look in the background there, Jonathan Kent's pinboard. He's got all these, you know, newspaper clippings from things that are, you know, uh, UFO sightings and, you know, uh, interest in what's happening in space and uh, maps and things like that. So he's obviously been invested in this protecting his son and finding out as much as he can and you know got a metallurgist to to study the the kryptonian command key to you know and you know, figured out that you know there's so much more behind this it's this wall of weird mm. and it just goes to show the depth of detail that they put into you know we'll never see what is written on those newspaper clippings but uh you know i'm sure that there are articles there that are written about you know certain things that have to do with the movie. That's just how much detail goes into creating the the scene settings for uh, these movies. It reminds me of the uh, was something I wanted to say about the Kryptonian chamber where uh, Jorel uh, helped Laura Laura to give birth. Uh, I, I thought it was spare. You know, on Krypton, uh, it's really the only we saw other than the council chamber but their bedroom or their whatever that was the walls were just black and had nothing on them and they were kind of in an empty room with her on a uh, on a platform of some kind mm. except they've always Here's got wires Al- in the background yeah there's Alison Crowe Alison Crowe who we uh, met at the after party she was very uh, very friendly and very excited to be involved with the movie and she's singing Ring of Fire um the classic song, and he Clark learns about this uh, thing happening out in the in the ice. This study, this place where there uh, the Americans and the Canadians had, you know, found something strange underneath the ice. And Clark here confronts Ludlow. I like how this guy stands up. He's uh, <laughs> much shorter than Clark. He's uh, uh, he weighs about ninety pounds, soaking wet, and uh, he's gonna say, you know, uh, uh, stop bothering her or what? What are you gonna do? And clearly, he must know that within a business, uh, he, he's not going to get beat up by one of the employees mm. uh, because I don't know that he would have <laughs> like how he bounces off him back into the chair, <laughs> into the chair. Uh, he's obviously, I, I believe, you know, a bully of the type of doesn't really do his bullying when he thinks he's going to be uh, stopped or confronted. They do it. They do it when they uh, when they can tell that there's not going to be any resistance. Mm. I wonder how many times I have to I'm, do that can-throwing thing until you hit him exactly where they wanted to hit him. <laughs> I'm not thrilled about them showing that there were military men at the bar and other people that didn't say anything or do anything. Yeah, they just kind of laughed it off. And a lot of people had a problem with uh, Clark destroying this man's truck the way he did. I mean, it's pretty funny. Everyone got a laugh out of it in the cinema. And I guess it's kind of similar to Superman 2 where he goes back and beats up on the bully in, in, the, in the diner there. Uh, when he's got his full powers, but uh, yeah, it's... Clark in Smallville also uh, mm-hmm. stacked up all the police cars yep. in the, at the uh, dance or whatever the homecoming. And I guess the show here is, we he, have our first. He, he, so I was just saying, he's still a human. He's still got you know frustrations. Our first glimpse of Amy Adams as Lois Lane, mm-hmm. and what a way to introduce her! You know, uh, a, a, a world traveling reporter uh, climbing off of a helicopter in the middle of an Arctic tundra. And uh, not seemingly uh, phased by it at all, and just uh, going with the flow. And 
and uh, trying to hold her own with these men and uh, I think doing a pretty good job. Then, of course, the bags are heavy. She's got to let Clark know That's that. right. He's got to make out like the yeah. Sure, okay. You reckon these are heavy? No problem. <laughs> and uh, she has some really, you know, uh, I want to say ball-busting lines here, you know. What can I say? I, you know, I have writer's block if I'm not wearing a flak jacket. And um, what she says to uh, Colonel Hardy when she's introduced to him, you know, he goes, you're early, and she says, well, that's why I'm here. I can't say, you know, in, in watching her speak here, uh, I've always loved Amy Adams, but I can't say that I, she would have necessarily been my first thought to play Lois Lane. But um, with the dialogue she's given and the way she uh, she's a great actress, she pulls it off really well, and I really like what we ended up with. Mm. It was definitely a different take on Lois, you know, her knowing the secret from the very start and being in on from the ground floor. Uh, if you're going to believe her as being a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter, then you've got to understand that she's got to be something more than just a, a you know, girl writing the uh, the love letter column who can't figure out that this man wearing glasses is the alien who's come to our planet saving people. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the parts of the mythology that people seem to have the easiest time tearing apart. Uh, but now we have, even though we're we're being told Lois is in on it from the beginning here. I've, I'm already hearing people say, well, what about Perry? What about uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, Jenny? and <laughs> uh, The other members of the staff that were there when, when he saves Lois and kisses her at the end and uh, Jenny and uh, for some reason I can't think of the jock's name. but Steve Lombard. Mm, Lombard. Uh, and I said, well, they were far enough away. And again, we still go back to well, this is a guy in a strange uniform who's able to fly around and uh, lift people and, and destroy half the city in his fights. And uh, I don't know that they're ever going to connect. And they might. You know, it might be that Perry is somehow in on it as well. But it's it's something that even even the people who hate that part of the mythology have to, I think, have to understand that. You wouldn't necessarily look at a godlike man who could fly around as an everyday person who wears glasses in the daytime. Mm, works in a newspaper, yeah. Now here we have uh, Clark looking for what he's under the ice and using his heat vision to uh, create his own tunnel uh, through the uh, thousand-year-old ice. And um, lovely, I love the use of the, the heat vision there and how it kind of stays a little bit within the... the uh, the perimeters of his eyes and his and his um, veins and things, you know, you seem to be still be lit up with it shortly after he's used it or building it up to use it. I do love the way they showed it there, and I, I love that you could obviously you can see the power of the heat vision. He's able to uh, bore a tunnel only using that through this uh, twenty thousand year old ice. So here we have the scout ship, the Kryptonian scout ship that had been here for you know, so many thousands of years. And uh, when stepping on board, he finds this little console that he recognises the shape as being similar to the command key that's hanging around the, the piece of string on his neck that he's been wearing since it was given to him by Jonathan as a kid. 
And as he inserts it, uh, he gets attacked by this uh, Kryptonian robot, which is obviously, uh, you know, a protective drone or a security drone. But also looks like it's able to do some damage to him. He mm. uh, he reacts as if he's in pain, and he holds his uh, shoulder later uh, after he. See, after he removes the key here, he's still holding his arm as if it still bothers him. Yeah, obviously, Kryptonian technology is a lot more fierce than uh, human technology towards a, a fellow Kryptonian, and there we have Lois with her Nikon camera. Little little product placement there. <laughs> here, uh, here's a command chair that someone who was piloting the ship at one time or another would have sat in. Uh, this brings up another point of contention that I've had discussions with about people, the prequel comic that was released with certain versions of the movie, uh, uh, the tickets when you bought them for uh, pre-advanced sale for Walmart, showed us uh, that Kara left Krypton thousands of years ago and was in this scout ship and came to Earth long before uh, Kal-El. And the question then is, is, is Kara still around? Uh, is she one of these bodies in one of these pods? Is, did she emerge from the open pod? Or are they not really going bad at all? And if they're not, why would they release that uh, comic and, and uh, tell us that it's written by Goyer and that it has a connection to the film? Yeah, it's interesting. Are they leaving some threads there of open for speculation? There is the open pod, and they do focus on it. And, and here we have Lois get attacked by that uh, security drone... Uh, taking a picture of it and, uh, you know, because of uh, her being there, this is when her and Clark really meet for the first time and he saves her life. Way he yeah, I've heard people say uh, she would have been dead just by the amount of force she got thrown into the wall with, but uh, I'm not certain of that myself. Mm. She's got a pretty thick jacket on there, which would have protected some of the impact I love this um, I can do uh, another things. another thing I didn't hear in the theater uh, when when he says I'm gonna have to cauterize it she says how are you going to or whatever and I in the theater I never heard her response I just saw her look and that and I, th I thought he was responding to her clear confusion by saying, I can do things that other people can't. But uh, th it's another reminder to me that in the theater, sometimes the sound mix just isn't right. Mm. And he here we have one of the many Smallville uh, connections to uh, this movie with um, Alessandro Giuliani, the man there rushing out from uh, from his equipment. <laughs> He obviously played uh, Emil Hamilton Email. on Smallville, but here we have Man of Steel's version of Hamilton as they That's watch right. uh, the scout ship break out from its uh, icy home for thousands of years to uh, to, to fly away. But uh, before he flies away, obviously he leaves Lois somewhere uh, to, to be found, to be picked up. Now, I guess the idea is that Colonel Hardy and the rest of the team were going to say that they did not see that flying vessel because 
later on when when uh, Lois goes back to Perry and he says he can't print it because he's not going to uh, alarm people that there might be aliens looking among us. And obviously, if there was, they all know when they see that the rise up out that that it's some sort of a uh, alien craft. Mm, obviously, he and Perry says the Pentagon says it was just something else, and she goes, "Obviously, they do. It's the Pentagon." I love their relationship. It's just, you know, obviously have a lot of respect for each other, but they're open to, you know, debating things between them. And, you know, uh, he's got her in a hard spot because she's on contract, but he knows that, you know, she's in a, she's got a lot of integrity, and um, but uh, she's not willing to let it go for the moment. I've heard people say that Fishburne's portrayal of Perry is uh, too gentle or not so hard-nosed or hard-hitting, not so angry. And I actually find his portrayal to be very convincing as Perry White. You know, I've always thought uh, of the Lane Smith portrayal as being like a father figure mm-hmm. who can, you know, does yell, sometimes get angry with his reporters, but it's mostly because he's trying to push them and uh, and get good work out of them. So uh, I like that Fishburne is kind of more uh, a more rounded character. I like all my characters in stories to be more rounded, have more characterizations. Did you notice there John Peters got his uh, polar bear into a Superman film? There it was. Uh, <laughs> I know that's a joke that's been made. Uh, I heard uh, Zack Snyder talking about actually doing the polar bear thing and that they said they actually had a polar bear. There was a guy that had a trained polar bear or a polar bear that they were going to try and use. And uh, he said, well, it should be fine as long as it doesn't decide to eat anyone. And <laughs> in the end, they ended up going with stock footage from an IMAX film or something like that. That's right, yeah, from a National Geographic film of some kind or something along those lines. But here we have uh, Kal-El or Clark discovering that his name is Kal-El, that he's, this is his father, Jor-El, and uh, learning about his history. And I love the way they use that Liquid Geo display in a larger format here for him to illustrate Krypton's history and background. That's... It's a, it's, it, was a, it was an ingenious way of uh, uh, having him tell him about Krypton. It was... Uh, it looks... Yeah. Very stylized uh, artwork. Um, and almost a little bit of a homage to Superman the movie with Kal-El's ship you'll see here uh, displayed in a a star format in a way that uh, resembles or brings back memories of Donna's version of Kal-El's starship in uh, Superman the movie. Oh, yeah. I think they... they, That must have been one thing they, they, uh, they definitely decided to do on purpose. A bit of because uh, it doesn't, foreshadowing it, here about the world engines. It doesn't look like the ship that got launched uh, in this version of Krypton, no, but the I S, think they wanted to. The S on the end does, but uh, obviously being a almost 2D type style of storytelling, um, you know, other things were needed. But uh, you'll notice the S on it looks exactly like the spaceship that was sent out in this movie, but... Obviously, the indications of travel, they use this star format around it that brings to mind 
uh, Superman the movie. There it is. There's the closure of it, and there it flies off. I actually like the way the uh, AI intelligence of Jor-El says that our military leader Zod attempted a coup, but by then it was too late. He he never indicates that Zod was wrong. He never says that uh, an enemy of Krypton attempted to a coup. Uh, he never says anything one way or the other. He just says tried it and it didn't work it was too late mm. now just to clarify this genesis chamber that is within this scout ship is dormant there's no children within any of those pods there is no birthing actually going on it's there waiting to be used now do we did we get a positive answer to that i mean is that definite or are we just still going on uh in you know in my view i didn't see any no well that's the indication that I've been given, and you don't see any in there. And and later on, when Zod does come to start the scout ship up and take over the scout ship, you then see things starting. You know, some of those creatures, those um, uh, robotic, spindly-legged things, try to you know start getting into motion. So um, that's that's pretty much what I've understood. And and here we get the revelation of the Superman costume for the very first time in the movie. Now, I, I obviously made it clear that I love the movie. I, I love it as a new beginning, a new origin story for Superman. But there are some things that even I can say I think are a little questionable. Uh, there, there have been questions about where the suit came from, why it suddenly fits Clark, uh, why he gets it, why does he immediately go outside and, and pretty much know how to fly. I mean, we get a little bit of a, a, a humorous moment where he crashes, but for the most part, he is immediately able to use his powers, fly around, and, and have the big battle with the Kryptonians without really having any adjustment time. And neither do they, when they arrive, have any adjustment time. Well, I guess that's the point. That's why he's unable to stop them as as many people would like. And again, we don't know how much time has passed between getting the costume and, and being able to... I mean, he's shaved and his hair's brushed and all that kind of stuff. How did that all happen? Time must have passed at uh, some point. We don't know how long he's been on the scout ship. Uh, as for the costume, it's obviously Kryptonian garb that they wear under their garment. It's obviously a uh, an L ship because you saw that uh, uh, corpse in the thing wearing the S symbol on its chest. So, uh, you know, in Superman the movie, we don't know how... You know how he gets the costume, or how he suddenly knows he can fly. We just know that after him being uh, in there for a number of years, that he's able to do all these things. But here we have Kal-el, you know, trying as Jor-el says to him to push his limits. Let's see and he's how leaping. Far he can go, yeah, he's leaping an eighth of a mile. And I love how he... I like that they yeah. added that. I think it's a nice little touch, you know, able to leap tall buildings. You know, in the beginning of his career, uh, for I guess almost a year or more. Uh, Superman in the in the comic strips did not fly. He leapt. And uh, it's, you know, like you said, how does he know how to use his powers straight away? Well, he doesn't. He's he's testing them. He's trying to see how he'll go. He, he you know, went from leaping to, to flying and then, you know, realized that he's out into thin air and uh, and then loses his balance and loses his his uh, bearings. And uh, <laughs> the look he gives himself is to say, uh, let's try that again. 
And so many it's great like me lines in this movie. So many great pieces of dialogue that are just so quotable. When I'm playing any type of sport and I and I know that I should be able to do what I'm trying to do and I do something stupid instead, that's, that, that's the look that I <laughs> I think of when, when he gives that look about crashing there. It's very interesting the way they show the uh, gravity manipulation here. Uh, it's I don't think it's meant to be a, a conscious thing that he's going, well, I'm going to move these rocks now, but it's more like... Uh, when he activates that power and, and he's yeah. manipulating the gravity around him to actually be able to fly. We see it later on this, in Zod too. This is the one scene that I think of all the effects, and I think the effects are almost seamless in this movie, where I get taken out a little bit. It looks like when he flies over the planes with the animals running. I don't know if he's a little too large. I don't know if the colors are too bold. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but when I watch it, that's the one point where I go, that that doesn't look real. Everything else sits pretty well with me. Okay, I, re- I actually really like that sequence when I, especially when I first saw it on one of those specials, that thirteen-minute special that was released online. And I love that he's having such a good time. There's this smile across his face that he's saying, "How cool is this?" And he's just thoroughly enjoying himself being able to fly. That is the type of reaction I would hope to see from from Clark, you know, discovering his powers. And now we have to have that space shot that nearly every Superman movie seems to want to have. Uh, it's incredible, too, the way they, the way they have the, uh, the way they have him move. Um, mm. It's faster than, I've, than he's ever been shown moving before. The way he just zips from one part of the screen to the next, the way you see him flash around. When he decides to head off into space, he's there one second and then he's just gone. And here we have Lois actually doing some investigative reporting, chasing things back through time, different locations, and she discovers Pete Ross, and uh, she's chased uh, the story of this heroic figure saving people from the Arctic way back to the Kent farm in Smallville, Kansas. And Pete pretty much sells Clark out immediately. <laughs> Well, we don't know. What oh, you live for but... the, the guy who has superpowers? Yeah, he lives here on the Kent farm. Uh, <laughs> just go there and you'll be good. Well, maybe just says, so look, I think you need to go talk to Martha Kent. I really can't tell you anything more about, you know, we don't know. He probably just pa- passed the buck. Yeah, but he, I, I feel like he shouldn't have passed the buck. He should have said, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, we are talking about, about a guy who used to bully Clark, so he doesn't have the best uh, decision making. That's uh... true, but, but uh, he was his friend after that. And, uh, you'd think he'd be protective of the secret, but now it, it is interesting. This sequence, obviously, Clark tells Lois about a time when he was younger as an older teen, and how what Jonathan's thoughts were, and what happened there with him in with the tornado. Um, you know how much of an impact his telling of the ver- that version of the story had on Lois compared to the impact that we have. Seeing that that sequence uh, is 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 interesting because obviously it changes her mind about uh, where she's going with this story from this point onwards. I feel like this scene with Lois here in the cemetery must have been filmed before Henry Cavill really got built up because if you look at him wearing those clothes, his arms don't look thick enough. Mm to uh, to uh, uh, display the clothing he's wearing in the manner by which they're laying on him. 
No. And then, of course, here in the car with Jonathan, he uh, it's meant to be. Obviously, it looks exactly like grown-up Henry Cavill because they decided to go with uh, Henry in this scene and not another Clark actor. But he's meant to be uh, younger, 17, 18, uh, maybe even 16, and not yet uh, completely into his powers, not yet in his zippy phase that I was talking about where he can zoom from one spot to the next that's not to say that he obviously couldn't have saved Jonathan here, but I don't think that it's as, as simple as with the powers he has, he could have grabbed Jonathan and been back before anyone knew he was gone or anything. You know, that's one of the arguments I always hear. And this scene here is probably the most controversial, the most disappointing to the most fans, even more so uh, than the big Zod ending. Now, we should clarify here that people in the know in uh, protecting yourselves against tornadoes uh, actually suggest that you don't go under an underpass. Uh, it's, it's not the place to go for, uh, for protection. Uh, but for this movie, that's what they uh, decided to do, what they needed to do, and uh, I wouldn't use it as necessarily um, you know, what you should do in real life. But... Uh, yeah, you know whether or not Clark could have saved Jonathan, whether he was ready or not. Jonathan told him he wasn't ready, um, and it's uh, still a very emotional scene, still very powerful. Uh, dumb dogs. I don't know why people go back for their dogs, but anyway. <laughs> I don't know if we want to be saying that, but uh, we'll have all the dumb people. Peto will be on the Superman homepage tomorrow. Uh, I. I... I did find it very emotional, and, and, and you know, for some reason it didn't really, as big a Superman fan as I am and, and as big as a uh, uh, an advocate for having both of his parents alive well into his Superman career, and as many times as I've said I wish these filmmakers wouldn't kill off Jonathan, they keep wanting to do it, it worked for me in terms of the way they did it. And I never, it never occurred to me that Clark would still do it here and that it is absurd that it didn't happen that way. Uh, I looked at him as a, as a young guy trying to honor his father's wish here. And I also think Jonathan doesn't want him to leave the people under the uh, overpass. Jonathan wants him to be there with Martha in case, she, in case they need him. Mm-hmm. Henry Cavill had a lot of screaming and yelling uh, sequences in this movie. I feel like, as with Jor-El and as with other characters, uh, there's so much more depth to these characters, so many more emotional beats, so many more just uh, acting moments than there have been in previous Superman movies. Mm. Steve Lombard's such a douche in this sequence he looks like ready for Lois to get ripped he's wrapped up like a douche (laughs) Uh, I didn't really buy him as the doc that he normally is but it doesn't seem like that's what they were going for he's a guy who likes to laugh at people he's a guy who likes to go after the interns he's a guy who, who likes sports but I don't really picture him as the big football guy that they often draw in the comics hmm Yeah, I, I like uh, uh, this performance 
Fishburne's performance of Perry is he's gruff, you know, he's like, you know, look, Lois, I, you know, since he's so willing to take the two weeks, let's make it three weeks, you know, he's not willing to, to let her get the best of him. But I also like here that we do see a softer side to Perry. We do see that his reasoning for not wanting to publish the story um, it comes from an emotional standpoint, um, a, w- a willingness to protect the people, a willingness to be unsure what sort of reaction they would get. Mm. There we have a LexCorp truck in the back. I believe that's the first time. We see mention of uh, LexCorp in this movie. And someone said to me, oh, now, some, now LexCorp knows where Clark Kent lives. I'll go, well, well, actually, it's just a nameless truck driver dropping a nameless country boy off at a nameless street and giving him a lift. They don't necessarily report right, back right. to LexCorp straight away and say, we gave this guy Clark Kent a lift home. It didn't even occur to me that the truck had given him a lift home until you just said it, actually. I mean, he's just taking, you know... I just thought it happened to be driving by at that time, but yeah. Uh, it did, when I watched this the other day, uh, I, I, I felt like Clark was a little bit careless in his choice of words to Martha here. And, and I guess that's okay. People are careless sometimes, but I feel like he... When he says, I found them, and she says, who, he probably shouldn't have said my parents. He probably he probably mm-hmm. should have worded it differently. He says, my parents, and you kind of see her shoulders drop, and she gets crestfallen. Uh, Martha and Jonathan are his parents. Um, uh, Jor-El and Lara are his birth parents, but your parents are the people who take care of you, who raise you, who give you, who instill you with whatever it is you believe about the world. And, and Martha is his mother and uh, his mom. You know, Lara is his mother, for lack of a better way to say it. Uh, Martha is his mom. And uh, I feel like he definitely made an error there. Nothing is made of it, but uh, he, he should have just went with my people. I found uh, the ship and it told me uh, who my people were. But I guess in his excitement, you know, he's just trying to share it with her. But yeah, I understand where you're going with there and, Again, he you get, you get this mother son moment, where uh, you know he kind of he does he reassures her that he's not going away that he's her son and um, we find out that yes that he did struggle when he was younger to adapt to Earth's atmosphere very early, which is something that uh, is interesting uh, once the Kryptonians do come to Earth. Well, they do a lot of lot of foreshadowings uh, that happens in movies. You know, you you watch it and you just think it's an erroneous uh, description of what happened to him as a child, but it's clearly setting up what they're going to do later. And he has the government discovering that there is a spaceship uh, coming to Earth, and uh, there's been no communication with them at this stage. But uh, while Swanwick seems a bit uh, concerned uh hamilton seems a little bit excited i love all of the characters from the mythology that have been included here even if some of them are different or they act in a different way you know swanwick hamilton um uh, obviously uh this guy i keep forgetting his name lombard, uh, lombard. Uh, the characters that normally in the films aren't really talked about, aren't really mentioned. You know, there's a whole planet staff to employ. Why not use Ron Troop later on? Why not use uh, characters like Cat Grant, uh, Lombard, other, you know, 
Let's... Why just have name? You know, in the, in the Donner movies, we had so many people that were there that taught Lorraine and stuff, and but nobody that was actually from. No, and let's comics. make it clear that Jenny is not Jenny Olsen. She's uh, no relation to Olsen. She actually has a different surname. It's escaping me at the moment, but it's on her ID badge. Uh, we can see it in one of the photos that were released. Um, she's not Jenny Olsen. You heard it here, folks. And here we have uh, the world discovering about this UFO. And here we get Zod's very spooky message to Earth, which I thought was fantastically done. It was uh, very, very spooky. Oh, when they released this over the summer, when they were or over the spring before the movie came out, it was just so cool to see this kind of tough guy version of, of Zod threatening in a, in a creepy kind of horror movie way. And obviously the Kryptonians have done their uh, research about Earth, knowing how to get in touch with uh, Earth using different languages, using all our uh, um, communication uh, mediums, TV, you know, internet, uh, telephones, uh, everything possible, taking over in all different languages to uh, broadcast across the face of the earth his ultimatum. It's interesting, when I watched this the other night, uh, Lexi, my three-year-old, came in every once in a while and watched some of these sequences with us and she is smart enough to realize that, that Clark is seeing this at his house. But then when it switched to the Daily Planet or when it showed the military guys watching it, she said, they not in his house. <laughs> Didn't get the idea that it was jumping around, but it was it was they were seeing the same thing that he was. And I tried to explain it to her, but. Now, uh, it is interesting to see. Clark's reaction when he hears Kal-El uh, being used in the message directly to him. Some of the some of the facial reactions of of everyone in this during this are great. You know, uh, Amy Adams who doesn't even have a personal stake in it you can tell that she is uh, really affected by hearing this message and, and knowing its connection to Clark at this point mm. and knowing that she's one of those people who actually does know the location of this person <laughs> and I love how, how she gets outed here in this interview <laughs> and Perry calls her immediately. This guy always reminds me of Neil Patrick Harris. Right, yeah. The news guy. I'm I'm kind of, you know, I was just mentioning before how they uh how I like when they populate the world with with people we know from the comics. Um it always it bothered me that they didn't use uh you know, Snapper Car or Jack Ryder uh, on this show that he's on and uh they could have they could have populated the world even more with people. Mm. Instead, they used Woodburn or whatever his name is. Now, there was a sequence here that they didn't use with uh, an ver like Lois running down the stairs and actually had a cameraman follow her the whole way down 
Uh, obviously, it went too long, and so they've cut just to her being out in that alleyway. But um, which was one of the things I was a little bit disappointed with the Blu-ray DVD bonus material was that we didn't get to see any deleted scenes. Uh, we know that early in the film there was a baby Clark Kent being um, sent to the doctor's surgery to uh, you know because he's having troubles, and they decided not to include that in the movie. I would have liked to have seen that in the bonus material. I didn't get to all the bonus material, but uh, now you've ruined my evening. I uh, <laughs> I would have assumed that they would include that. I mean, people are paying extra money. There's extra bonus material. Why wouldn't they uh, include that? Now, I wasn't uh, very clear on who this guy was, whether or what, what his beef with Clark was. I mean, just a bully just because he wants him to fight back, or has he heard that this guy, this Clark Kent, has got some... Um, abilities to him because he's assuming is that it is that all you've got obviously he thinks that there's more to him yeah I mean it could be that or or it could be uh, you know there are high school kids who who just like to pick on people who don't fight back and uh, they'll yell come on do something they know you're not gonna and that's why again I was saying about uh, bullies earlier uh, they generally are bullies because they know that they can be and because no one's going to stop them from being that way and that's the first indication of Pete Ross having changed his stripes And again, another very important scene between Jonathan and Clark, you know, telling him, yeah, everybody, you know, even I wanted to hit that kid, but then what? Like, what does that do? How does, what does that achieve? Um, obviously, there are ramifications for someone like Clark losing his temper and, uh, and striking out. And uh, a very interesting sequence here... Uh, again, with Superman the movie, we had a lot of Christian overtones, and uh, here once again, when we're focused on Clark Kent in a different angle, we see a stained glass window behind him of Jesus, and um, you know we have that whole: Do I sacrifice myself? You know, do I hand myself in? Uh, do I surrender? So, uh, very interesting uh, parallels there. Uh, obviously, something that's purposely done he seems to know the answer even though he goes here for uh, guidance in one way or another he he says it he doesn't ask he says uh if that's going to stop him from doing it then shouldn't i do it he doesn't really say he kind of clear that it's an option he should take his only concern is that maybe humans aren't to be trusted either but uh the priest says to him that sometimes you have to take a leap of faith first uh, leap of faith first before you uh, earn someone's trust. So uh, I guess that's the decision he makes, that he has to hand over himself to the people of Earth and trust them uh, to do the right thing. This is great here, his uh, first introduction to the military and the way they react, and I, I think this is the way they would react. Mm. And I also like his line here, don't mess with me, General. You know, uh, don't play games with me. I know you have to Ha, ha, ha. 
I love the way he said it. I love the way he delivered it. And I love the, the line itself. He looks so great hovering there with the sun next to him and the military below. And uh, we really see the um, the charisma and the chemistry between Clark, oh, well, Henry Cavill and Amy Adams here. Just such a great interview. And I think in one version they intended her f- to call him Superman, but it's interesting that uh, it was decided that she would get cut off while saying that. It is interesting. You know, I thought maybe it was because maybe they were doing the whole Christopher Nolan thing where for, for whatever reason in his movies you're not allowed to call people Robin. You're not allowed to call people Catwoman. Um, it, maybe it doesn't feel real enough to him or whatever. I thought they might go the whole movie without saying that's who he was. But then, as we know, we see... Uh, one of the military guys said he's being called Superman. So I don't really know why. I mean, maybe they wanted to leave it to that moment, but it seems like Lois should have been the one. So I'm not really sure why. Yeah, I love the way that uh, Superman here tells, you know, mentions that he knows his name and he can see the uh, the roll of mints or whatever they are in his pocket and uh, <laughs> and the tranquilizer at the back that they're trying to set up for him. But uh, Hamill's very. Uh, 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 Emil's very straightforward about you know look you, you you have to understand it from our point of view that you know we obviously have concerns and we need to take steps to protect ourselves but uh, Superman tries to assure them that um, you know he's there to protect them but they'll never control him. I love it. I've I've heard people complain about that as well and say oh, Superman's not arrogant. Superman wouldn't talk like that. Superman wouldn't say that. And uh, I actually think it makes complete sense. So now here we have the desert scene where uh, he's about to go off into meet the Kryptonians. But uh, we have what is a very brief cameo coming up with Aaron Smolinski, who, uh, for those who know his name, was the baby Kal-El uh, in Superman the movie, the one who comes out of the, the rocket and lifts up the, 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 uh, the truck with a flat tyre. Um, he had a line that was unfortunately removed from the final cut of the movie, but um, he's one of the soldiers standing to the right of General Swanwick uh, in a scene that's a, in a sequence that's about to come up, but... Uh, here we have the uh, the Kryptonian rockets or the Kryptonian spaceship uh, transport ship, I guess you'd call it, about to uh, the, come out of space. This is the ship I was calling the flea ship before. It looks like a flea. It flies around. Yeah. And that scene, that's just another scene again between uh, Amy Adams and Henry Cavill that is just very uh, emotional and, and character-driven and, and just shows the depth of their characters and, and their chemistry together. There is uh, Aaron Smolinski, the one who looked to his left, right behind uh, the right shoulder of Emil Hamilton. And here we have uh, Feora Ull uh, coming down, and you see the look on, on the general's face face on, uh, sorry, Colonel Hardy's face was like, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) 
the way she looks him up and down. I love the way they uh, they have the masks that open up and then uh, the uh, kind of transparency goes clear so you can see through it. Mm. Now, a lot of people question why would they want Lois Lane as well. And obviously, you know, General Zod and his crew have been studying Earth and know all about you know, our, if they're good enough to take over our communication devices, then they would be able to be looking at them and they would know that Lois does know who uh, Kal-El is. Like, she knows a bit more about him than anybody else, so they obviously want her on board as well because she has some information that might be useful to them. Well, a lot of find it easier to just say oh well they just want to have her on board to make it exciting and dramatic and it doesn't make any sense but uh, it actually as you say makes perfect sense because they've been monitoring and they know that the government is after her because she knows so mm. so if she's important to the government then she's important to them as well so uh and again they have this foreshadowing of the whole fact that the the, the um air on the spaceship on the Black Zero would not be compatible with a human, so they give Lois a, a breather, where uh, Clark does not get one, and we see why. And what there, are some, there are some questions that arise, mainly with this sequence of events that uh, we'll go through here, but uh, the first one I have is, if, if Lois says that they probed her brain, she didn't mean to tell them where uh, his house was, but uh, she couldn't help it. And he says, it's all right, they did the same to me. But uh, if they did that, then why wouldn't they have gotten the information that she had the command key and was able to deactivate their air and turn it back to Earth air and, and uh, rescue Superman? Well, perhaps because she actually doesn't know what that is. She just knows that she's been handed it to her uh, she doesn't know what it does but again they only may be fishing for the information that they need about where the codex is they might be a little bit short-sighted about anything else or, or don't think that they have any capabilities of doing anything other than giving them the information that they require you know they would be uh, you know pretty arrogant in their superiority well, there is a question here as to why, if the yellow sun of the earth is what gives him his powers, why his powers are completely nullified here in the atmosphere of Krypton. Uh, and I, I guess I have those same questions myself, because then that seems to indicate that uh, once he's in that atmosphere, he has powers, and the only reason he gets his powers back is because Jor-El switches them back on. Well, again, we don't know the length of time that he's been on this spaceship. Obviously, a lot of people are saying, well, why wouldn't the Kryptonians just want to take over Earth with its yellow sun and lighter gravity and all that kind of stuff? Why would they want to turn it into Krypton? And that is because, as Zod explains, that there is a lot of time and uh, necessary for them to be able to adapt and a lot of pain in adapting to Earth's uh, atmospheric uh, makeup. And they want their program to want Krypton 
the way it was. They're, that's that's just in their genetic makeup. They want to remake Krypton. They don't want or cannot see any other possibilities. Well, that makes sense as them being in their DNA. But uh, as far as there being a lot of pain, I mean, they immediately come down to Earth and start flying around and throwing cars and... Uh, yeah, they don't have the full takes his mask off, and he's perfectly fine, and it's only been a few minutes. Well, no, when Zod does, his mask does come off initially, it's uh, very painful for him, and they have to rescue him and bring him back on board. It's not until later on, through force of will, that he is able to, uh, you know, focus on, um, on you know, being able to cut out all those other distractions, but... Uh, it's interesting here that we have the backstory of what happened to the Kryptonian villains once they were managed to escape from the Phantom Zone thanks to the destruction of Krypton and how they explored all these other outposts, uh, were able to grab the machinery and the world engine and all those other stuff, but were not able to uh, find anything that would help them until Kal-El turned on or opened up the scout ship which sent out the signal for them to locate him on Earth and that they'd actually been in space wandering around for 33 years. Yeah, I was going to say, they, they mentioned that it was 30-some years, and uh, when people ask, you know, why, if, if if Zod or Superman had just thought about it for a minute, they could have said, well, let's just go find another planet. I don't really think that was on Zod's mind. It didn't really matter to him that there were Earthlings here. He was here, had already been searching for 30 years, now they found the Codex. They just want to get on with the resurrection of Krypton and the Kryptonian species, they're not really, uh, well, it's, they're not really all that interested in finding a different planet or. No, it's just, it's, we've seen it here, colonization of different uh, countries within our own species. You know, we, uh, wipe out the, or take over the, the land that we find and, and, you know, don't really worry about the indigenous population that have been there already. Now, I don't know if this is meant to be um, Clark actually considering the idea and, and uh, a little like the Spider-Man when he gets taken over by Venom. It's it's kind of um, in its own way. It has some sort of appeal. Well, yeah, I could have my people back and I could. So in his own mind, he's having a battle against the darker version of himself or if they just thought it would look cool to have him in a black suit. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why that would have manifested itself that way. Mm, probably just so they could do more merchandising. <laughs> right. So they have the other statue with him on the, mm-hmm. the dark costume. Yeah, I think it's it's entirely clear based on most of Michael Shannon's dialogue that uh, – uh, I mean, he's enough. just driven, yeah, right? And he's driven to this, to this end by uh, his genetic code and and by what he has always believed from the beginning. And there isn't really an argument uh, in terms of well, why wouldn't he just? Well, he's made it clear that he's not going to just uh, acquiesce and uh, do something else. He's mm. he's going forward with his plan, with or without uh, Kal-El. Because that's what he has to do. And here we have the scout ships heading to Smallville, to uh, obviously where they've discovered Clark grew up and uh, are looking for the Codex. 
does give a bit away to the American military because you would think moving forward that it would be clear that this these compatriots of his had an interest in Smallville, Kansas. So why? So let's do an investigation. Lois was able to find out by just uh, talking to Pete one time. So seemingly, uh, it's that easy to find out that his name is Clark Kent. He lives on the Kent farm. Once the entire world is threatened and the basis for their attacks happens in Smallville, you would think that uh, there would be repercussions of that. There may be something that they investigate in a future movie. But uh, here we have Lois realizing that this thing that Clark has given her uh, may come in handy, and she inserts it into... Uh, and I guess there's one of these consoles in every room because it seems strange that they would put her in a room where... I mean, they're not to know that she would have one of these with her, these command keys with her, but... I love her reaction here when she sees jor <laughs> yeah, It's like, holy crap, where'd you come from? <laughs> Falling back against the wall. <laughs> His look. Can I help you? Yeah. He's incredulous that she had even asked. <laughs> I designed this ship. Mm-hmm. And then uh, obviously uh, he changes the the atmospheric uh, atmospherics to be human compatible, and the alarms go off, and the Kryptonians know that something's wrong. And but now there's the... been some question as to why, if the uh, atmosphere has been turned to Earthling compatible, why the Kryptonians on board don't collapse and start having all the reactions that that uh, Zod has when. It happens to him on the planet. Well, I guess they why, haven't had any yellow sun yet. If it's Earth's uh, atmosphere, why can they breathe? Why are they unaffected completely? What you know? They have no no Kryptonian air here, so what are they breathing? What they're well, breathing he's, Earth he's air? About, you're about to would, see. Would they notice that? You're about to see him realize that there's something wrong. Uh, I'm forgetting his name. This uh, scientist. But see, there he is. He's got his hand to his throat. He's realizing that yeah. he's struggling with his breathing. And uh, there goes the more uh, product placement with the IHOP. Lois looking at the gun, realizing, oh, do I know how to fire this thing? This is a great sequence. A lot of people love it. Uh, Russell Crowe walking around, controlling all the parts of the ship, telling her where to fire and uh, showing her where to go. And he says, duck your head to the left. <laughs> yeah. uh, we get a bit of foreshadowing of his death with the uh, way he kind of came apart a little bit there at her touch. And the firing on her escape pod uh, sets up a malfunction that is going to force her to crash land uh, unless something's done about it. I wonder what's going to happen. I'm very excited to find out. It looks like Lois might die in this uh, particular sequence. Do you like how he doesn't answer him straight away? He tells him to strike the panel first. I'll explain to you in a second. Hmm. 
Someone mentioned that it doesn't make any sense that uh, Clark would be able to punch Kryptonian metal or destroy a wall on a Kryptonian ship because the density of the metal would be stronger than his uh, powers because he, in the comics, uses Kryptonian metal to shave and is cut by Kryptonian metal. And uh, that is true in some continuities of the comics, but not necessarily all. Hmm. And we get another Christ-like image there with that, the way he decided to float out with his arms stretched out. But here he is zooming to Lois's rescue as she plummets towards the earth. And again, I was surprised at how much of this was done in camera and not CG when you look at the behind-the-scenes stuff to realise just how much... And it's filmed. just, uh, it's amazing. It's it's filmed so incredibly well. Mm. These shots where he's flying and the wind is there and the cape is going and 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 being that it's a practical practically shot scene, it just it's re- super believable. It really looks like they're plummeting toward the earth, and it it really just looks like exactly what you want it to look like. He's pulling her out of that pod, and the sequence is incredible. And this is uh, interesting. They actually used a real helicopter to land there for the wind and the dust and everything and then superimposed the uh, Kryptonian spaceship over that uh, for the wind and everything that uh, Martha was feeling as she was exiting her front door. And uh, I love that scene, the way they're twirling as they go down. Mm. It's very, uh, well. again, well shot. It, it makes it... Uh... Obviously, there's a romance going on, even though they don't not necessarily know it yet but uh i've heard people say it's too quick and they're kissing in the middle of the battlefield later on and it's uh out of place and uh they shouldn't care that much about each other yet they they just met and yet they're in a serious relationship but and uh i like this uh this sequence where he goes to what he tells zod when he's about to smash his face in but uh before that we uh have Feora seeking uh, the Codex for Zod. And again, he won't do any of the dirty work himself. He gets Feora to strangle her and poor Martha gets thrown quite a bit, uh, quite a, thrown around a bit here. And I feel like this sequence should have happened before Clark heard what was going on because... Smallville is small, and he is super fast. We've mm. seen him zoom off into space within seconds, and it seems to take him an incredible amount of time to get here. Well, it is. He's coming all the way from wherever it was. We, that It's a fair distance. Remember how far the uh, two scout ships had to travel uh, to make it to Smallville from where they were, and that's where he was, so... Although you're people right, have, it did seem to land people, near some, some cornfields. So. People seems to uh, say to me, um, you know, those other Kryptonians could be tearing Martha's arms off right now. And uh, he's so interested in yelling at him about his mother, but he leaves her alone with them over there. Uh, I don't really think it was a thought that he had. I think he was emotionally reacting to the idea that his mother was in danger. And in following that through, I also think the other Kryptonians will be so focused on where they took, where he took the leader that they're not going to stick around there. They're going to go after them. Yeah, 
Exactly, and here we have uh, Zod realizing that there is much more to being able to be on Earth without your protection, uh, protective skull, helmet. While he's explaining it to us, he's also explaining it to Zod. That's right. I love when he gets blasted by the ship there, and you can see the glow of the energy beam across his chest. And it did seem to shock him and stun him a bit. Mm, plasma, I think they were saying, is what's the weapon's fire. And while they fly off with Zod, uh, down the street we have the old uh, western standoff in the main street of the of the town with uh, almost, uh, you know, the, the noon showdown. It would be an interesting way and probably a smart thing to, do to take Martha with them and use her uh, to force him to do what they want, but... Uh... It must be that whole superiority thing where they don't even think of her as significant. They toss her around and they just leave her there. It doesn't really matter to them whether one particular human lives or doesn't. And you have there, you know, Clark telling people, go inside, it's not safe. So he has, he does have, you know, uh, concerns for the people of Smallville and wants to make sure that they're, you know, not in any danger. But again, they don't know who he is either. Fast as a speeding bullet. Uh, not fast enough. <laughs> well, Superman and Feyora got out of the way. Well, Superman still clipped that building. That's true. He was trying to outrun the bullet so fast he didn't realize that <laughs> somebody put a building there. <laughs> Who put this here? Wasn't there this morning? <laughs> And uh, here we have it. this 10-foot tall or whatever. He seems a 10-foot tall. Uh... He just crushes the sky. Boom. Oh. Oh. He, like, squeezed him to death. And, again, just leaping, not flying yet, these Kryptonians. And... But Superman uh, takes Feora and, unfortunately, they land at Pete Ross's place of business. You wonder if he recognises him here or not. There seems to be a bit of a... Are you who I think you are? I love Feora. Yeah, so great. Lines are delivered so well. I love the way she just drolly explains the situation to him. And there's the, the bank vault. There it is. Just amazing the 
choreography of these fight scenes and you know grabbing the cape and hurling him around and he tries to fly he grabs him by the foot and smashes him into the dirt and again yeah. all that was done you know physically in camera you know with green screen mats and all that kind of stuff and then we got the Sears product placement there and so again we have this fact that superman is untrained you know he's not a fighter he's never had any experience he's only just learnt really the extent of his powers and he's being confronted by these equally uh super team of uh of bad guys i love the fighting i love the way they they just display the superpowers in a way we've never seen before i mean uh grabbing him in mid-flight tossing him to the other side smashing him now here they're holding his face down and he of course uh ignites his uh heat vision which is a surprise to them i guess they're not yet aware that they have that and again he's not just fighting them he's got the military on his back fighting at him shooting at him too and you know he he's trying to protect these people yet they still don't trust him <laughs> he gets hit in the head yeah that was a that was a uh Quite a cool shot there with his head getting flipped back. And here he is saving people. So it's not just, you know, he went out of his way to save someone. So, you know, all that talk about him just destroying everything without a care uh, is unfair, I think. It's very unfair. I mean, it's, all of his actions here are actually, uh, even though the world doesn't know it yet, are to are to protect the entire world and save everyone. If he if he doesn't fight them now, as much damage as it might cause, they're going to destroy the entire world. And how cool is this sequence? Just zipping Feora, bang, bang, bang. One, two, three, just smacking them all out. It's fantastic. It's, it's the choreography and then the way they had to, however, whatever they had to animate in order to put the two worlds together. And it's just, it's super fighting like we've, never seen before and uh which just reminds me of of uh how angry i'm going to be if if they have batman and superman fight to where batman can actually hold his own because even though he's trained and even though he knows how to fight if you if you can't move at the speed that these i mean look at them look at how he's putting up a fight against these kryptonians he just if he grabbed Batman the same way, he would just be dead in one shot. Yeah. And admittedly he didn't have to throw him into the trains there, but Another empty trains. <laughs> and here we have a great line from Feora, which is echoed later on. I also don't know if it was just a gratuitous scene where he throws him into the trains for no reason. I Superman knows he has to put them down and he is trying to stop them maybe explosions maybe by getting thrown into a train in some way or another he wants to end this I mean the military don't do much less damage do they uh, you know firing rockets at, to the streets right. of Krypton and uh, sorry streets well, it's of the Smallville same, it, 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 it's the same kind of thing. You you have to stop this horrible threat by whatever means possible, and there will be damage. Yep. Uh, people have said, well, he could fly them into space. But on the other hand, 
I don't know that he's thought of that, but also he knows Feora's back there, and he knows there's other Kryptonians, so he's trying to get rid of one while he makes sure he goes back and stops the other from killing somebody. That's it. It's not one-on-one battle. It's, you know, there's a, a whole army of them, and they take Feora and they uh, recover her, and the military realizes that uh, this boy in blue is actually on their side. It's one of the greatest scenes uh, when Hardy comes up and says that. And they all lower their weapons. Uh, it could be. You could go, well, yeah, just as they realize the weapons aren't going to do anything against them anyway. But uh, uh, as the music plays and they recognize him and they see that he's with them, I think that's the reason they put their guns down. Oh, for sure, 100%. Even look on their faces, you know, show of respect, saying, you know, he's one of us. I'm tearing up now just watching it. <laughs> the music is working on me, even though I'm not a huge fan of, of... Well, it's not that I don't like the soundtrack. The soundtrack is perfect for the movie. It's uh, These days, it's about mood. I've been saying that to people. It's not necessarily about creating a theme or having an imperial march when Darth Vader comes out. It's more about establishing the entire tone and the mood for the movie in reality, soundtracks are meant to be a companion piece. They're not mm. really meant to overshadow the film. You're not even supposed to notice them. I've heard composers say uh, the best soundtracks are the ones you don't even know are there. They're there and they're enhancing what you're watching, but you're not you know, listening actively to the soundtrack. I love Martha's comment here. I do want to reiterate here that I hate I hate every version where Jonathan Kent uh, has to be killed. It, it bothers me, and I don't find it to be necessary. Uh, as much as I love the film, uh, we're in a continuity now where, once again, Jonathan Kent has to be dead, and I just don't see the necessity of that. Now, people are saying Lois here was very irresponsible calling Clark Clark in front of the officer, but I think there's a fair distance between her and the, and the, and the policeman for, to hear the name. But he does obviously realise that there is a significance to the house, I guess, because she's got a lift there. I do, yeah. I mean, I thought that too when I was watching it. Uh, she probably shouldn't be yelling Clark to him. Uh, but the cop also knows where they live now, so... Uh... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's also the idea that several people in Smallville also know the secret and it's kind of a hometown thing. Maybe a lot of the town, including the police, do know that Clark has these powers and they're keeping it amongst themselves. Mm. Pete doesn't seem to be in on that. but uh... Now, which one of these is Jaxer? Because you said you weren't sure of the scientist's name, but uh, my uh, memory is that Jaxer is the one who destroys the Krypton moon, uh, but so one of these Kryptonians is listed as Jax or in the credit. That would be the guy who took the blood from Cal. That's what I thought. I think Namek. So he's more, uh, more of a scientist. And uh, more of a scientist here and not, not necessarily the man responsible for the destruction of the moon. They just kind of put that there. Exactly. Just a, a bit of an Easter egg for fans. But Namek is the tall monster guy. And here we have the world engine being sent to the South Pacific to the other side of the planet so they can start the uh, process of 
changing Earth into Krypton. And the movie doesn't tell you these things. They're listed in the credits, but unless you look up the actor and know who it is, most people aren't going to do that. Uh, we don't hear any of the other Kryptonians' names. We hear Feora, we hear Zod. Uh, as far as I know, that's it. No one really is mentioned by name. No, other than uh, Jarell, Kalel, the, you know, Lara. There probably is no right. real need. I mean, we don't go around calling each other by name when we talk to each other. We just we know who we're talking to. We just start talking to them. Uh, there's been a lot of jokes made, and uh, you know how Matt still should have ended is uh, funny on the how it should have ended page. I love it. I, I don't I don't begrudge it for what it does. It's a comedy. It's funny. Um, uh, it mention of the idea that this whole thing could have ended and there wouldn't have been any more destruction if if Cal el once he knew Zod was a threat, had just gone to his space dad at the uh, scout ship and um, asked him how to deal with the Kryptonians. He could have just taken his his baby ship up into space and thrown it at their ship uh, before it ever landed on Earth here and uh, there wouldn't have been an issue. But I don't really know that there's time for that. I also don't know if he knew in time to know. He, he got sent down here. He got into a battle immediately. He uh, went back to check on Martha, and they're already landing the ships here. Exactly. There's really no time to even have gone to the scout ship and have a conversation with Jor-El. Um, and plus, Lois at that point has the command key, which is the Jor-El AI, as far as I understand it. There you go. Didn't think of that. Didn't think of that, did you, people? <laughs> And he was, Someone uh, asked me, uh, one of my friends, uh, when I told him it was great, he's like, oh, I'd like to go if you want to go again. And I said, oh, absolutely, we'll go again. Uh, he, I ended up not able to go the day that he chose to go, and about 10 people went with him. And my understanding is none of the 10 people really liked it, uh, which is fine. But uh, one of the things he mentioned that kind of took him out of the movie was, why tentacles? Why does he have to go and fight this thing? And why does it have tentacles? And I just said, well, I think that's just its defense system. That's you know, it's uh, whatever it's using to defend itself. Mm, it's and an extension kinda, of that uh, liquid geo display. Is that liquid that geo technology? And for some reason, people took issue, and I've heard other critics say it too. It's dumb. This ship in the middle of the water has tentacles. at fighting Superman. I mean, it is a science fiction basis. It. And uh, there are plenty of robotic, tentacled ships in sci-fi battles and comics. And after all, this is a comic book-based movie. Mm. They got Superman in tow. Superman? That's what they're calling him. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of a... an interesting moment, and it's funny. So maybe that's why they decided to move it there. Because had Lois called him that earlier, we would be robbed of that moment where we yeah. find out that that's what they're calling him now. Now, the people saying, well, why didn't Superman go and take on the Black Zero? Why did he have to go to the uh, World Engine? And obviously there's no way that they can, he can fly that... Space like his uh, his Starcraft into the Black Zero while the World Engine is still operating because of the gravity effect that it has around the Black Zero while it's uh, slave to the World Engine. 
Well, what I had thought was, why doesn't he just, at super speed, fly his own body through the body of the ship, as opposed to going to the Indian Ocean? Uh, I understand the plot point that he needs to destroy the world engine in order to destroy the gravity beam so that he can drop his ship into it. But couldn't he have destroyed the alien vessel by just just flying into it and exploding it? Well, that's what he and ends I... up doing to the Black Zero, which is the one that's... I, I guess it's the... Uh, I mean, the world engine is the one creating the gravity beam. It's not the uh, the Black Zero. The uh, It's just sending back the signal back through the core right. of the Earth. My the thought, the, uh, the decision I ultimately came to was the gravity field around the Black Zero in Metropolis is too great for him to actually fly. He would be knocked away just like the rockets are. True, true. Yeah, good point. Now we have uh, Zod uh, deciding to go. To, yeah, Zod deciding to go to it. the uh, scout ship to pay Jorel a uh, a visit. I just think that the the movie is just shot so well. So many Mm. interesting camera angles and the way they chose to show flight. It's just so epic. It just feels so much more grand than a lot of these other movies, Marvel movies and things, which I love. I loved Avengers. People talk about it being better than this or other movies being better. I just feel like this has a feel to it that those other movies don't have. And now uh, those are fun, exciting. You know, this is just more. I don't know. I just feel like it. It means so much more and has so much heft behind it. Now Zod, having mastered his uh, ability to withstand Earth's atmosphere, has entered the scout ship and inserted his own command key to override that of Jor-El and has set up the Genesis Chamber. As you saw, the lights came on inside the Genesis Chamber. Things started pulsing. You'll see in the background that some of those creature-like robots start to operate where we didn't see that before. But again, no babies yet. No. They would, have, they would need, they the, need codex the codex, and they would, they would need the DNA in order to start actually manufacturing babies, which is technically what it is, a baby manufacturing factory. <laughs> Uh, that was a cool shot there, right from uh, All Star Superman when he uh, is flying away from the sun there. And here in this shot, they have the sun glowing behind him as he comes around and puts his arms behind his back. Um, shot directly from the comic books. And it's interesting to see Superman coughing. Yeah. see the rockets kind of just turn and, and uh, bounce off and not hit anything that's and that's right. the uh that's the gravity beam now you may say well at the speeds he can fly at he could probably beat that gravity pulse or whatever but i think that that's the point in the plot here that he needs to destroy that other one in order to turn off the gravity beam and perry takes charge and tells everybody they need to evacuate the building and as far as Zack Snyder's concerned, there was only probably about 5,000 deaths. And if anything, a lot of those deaths were caused by the military's rockets and, and aeroplanes crashing into buildings just as much as what happened later on. Because at that point and in you the know, movie, a lot the of the deaths are happening right now. Yeah. They're happening because of the Black Zero and because of this battle that they're trying to stop. Not, you know, by the time Zod and Superman fight, 
the city has already been cleared. The buildings are already empty in this part of town. And 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 also during a lot of the fight scenes above where they're flying, you can see an expansive city much larger than New York, much larger than Philadelphia, uh, where it's everything is still standing and looks okay. It's only this one spot where the gravity beam was being shot where there's a lot of damage, and that's where Superman and Zod takes place, where it's already been cleared out by the gravity beam. I love this sequence because I love to see the Daily Planet characters, Perry uh, and uh, 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 the other guy. <laughs> uh, I love to see them involved. I love to see them oh, with a, with something to do. And I feel like um, they, they, they took great pains in the script and in the shooting to make sure that everybody had a purpose. Hmm. Uh, something that I think they failed with in Superman Returns, Frank Langella was kind of an unnoticeable presence there in that movie. He was there just to be Perry, but he there wasn't really anything to the part. Not a lot of impact, no. But uh, he, Jarrell, is about to be killed by Zod for a second time, and again the way the look that Michael Shannon gives to the remains of what was Jarrell, or the fact that he's no longer there, is you know, again, a foreshadowing of all, you know, not a foreshadowing, but a look back at the fact that he has some regrets at having killed his, his once friend and, um, you know, but he has a mission and he's not about to step aside for anybody to complete that mission. I find myself hoping that that's just for the time being. I mean, I don't know if you can entice an actor like Russell Crowe back for a sequel. We may have a an Islet Zero situation where, like in the Superman 2 Lester version, uh, we have Lara appear instead of uh, Marlon Brando because they couldn't get him to come back. Uh, but I would like to see more Krypton stuff. And I'm, it's another thing that is, I think, hurting the feelings of Man of Steel fans that now we have Batman involved and maybe Nightwing and maybe Wonder Woman and which which takes away a lot of our hope for further Krypton exploration, further exploration as Clark as a child, further explanation exploration of Jonathan and Martha and maybe we would finally we would actually see the ship land and how they discover him and maybe we would get to see more of that in actual uh, sequels. But now we have ten thousand other characters and and half a we focus on Batman, so I don't know that we're going to get that. Well, Russell Crowe has admitted that he would like to come back, especially with a lot of people commenting about wanting to see a prequel about Krypton, about Zod and, and Jor-El's relationship and friendship before the destruction of Krypton. And uh, Russell seems to be open to the idea of coming back. Uh, we'll have to see if that's possible, if there is any need for it moving forward. But uh, we're about to see a sequence where a lot of people thought that there was a tribute to Christopher Reeve with uh, Superman's face distorted under this, this uh, gravity beam and as he fights his way up to try to defeat its uh, effects on him, his face, you know, through all the forces being pushed onto him, uh, seems to shimmer into what people think is a tribute to Christopher Reeve. But I think it just happens to be a coincidence that they both just look like Superman. Uh, you and I differ on this. I uh, I think it's incredibly evident. I think 
it's obvious. I think it's apparent. I think it's uh, you hardly can't you can hardly look at it without right there. You can't even uh, you can't look at it without seeing it. It's uh, it's it's blatant uh, and it's uh, purposely done. I, I can't. There's I, there's no way I can ever turn away from that unless we were told specifically that it wasn't. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see if uh, Zack Snyder ever admits to that. And here we have the destruction of the world engine, which uh, stops the gravity beam, saving Jenny, Perry, and Lombard. And uh, the f- the world engine falls apart, and uh, Superman is prone pretty much at his, uh, you know, having used all his energy in, until the... We see him reach out for the sunlight to help re-energize him, but uh, now the military are clear to fire his starship onto the Black Zero. But uh, there seems to be an issue with the alignment. Again, great music, just the the tone of the the humming and the... Mm. And they use real military guys for these, you know, uh, a lot of these sequences. The the soldiers and that were real soldiers, uh, real military people, real Air Force personnel, uh, which I think was a, a, a great thing to do. I really love, uh, you know, much like I enjoy the way they they incorporated the use of the Daily Planet characters with an actual role in in what was going on. I love the way they use humanity here, and and the military is involved, and Lois is involved, and Emil Hamilton is involved, and they're all they're all essential parts of this whole procedure, this whole process. And uh, Zod comes to spoil the party, trying to stop them from. Uh, fulfilling their uh, role uh, using the scout ship, um, but uh... and it looks like a job for Superman. <laughs> Definitely. And there he goes. Now there is some talk about his reaction here and him saying Krypton had its chance and and destroying the ship, and we see the Genesis chamber get destroyed. I'm a little torn on it myself, uh, only because it seems like it has a finality to it, meaning that Superman is willing to uh, decide right here and now that that Krypton is over and there will never be a uh, a resurrection of his species using the OX information because uh, he's destroying the Genesis Chamber here. I don't believe that there wouldn't necessarily be a way in the future that they could introduce the Fortress of Solitude, or the new the technology to uh, have a new Genesis Chamber, or something like that. But it it is a little dark of him to say Krypton had his chance, and then go ahead and uh, do what he does. Uh, there's some indication that the the ship that Zod went to the Arctic in uh, to find the Scout ship did he leave that behind, or was it somehow taken aboard the Scout ship and brought back with him, or is there now a uh, a spacecraft left there in the Arctic for, for Superman to find. It does seem like that there there should be. Mm. 
And here we have Faora just... trying to do her part to stop the uh, the attack on the uh, the Black Zero. Was that definitely the scout ship, or could that be his ship that he takes? No, it was definitely the scout ship that he's taken off with to uh, to pilot back. Um, so we don't know where his ship that he came down with to the Arctic. Of course, that doesn't that doesn't uh, exonify Superman of what he does there because he's not aware that there's a ship out there, and he's not like he's going. Well, if I destroy this one, there's another ship out there that I can use to create another Genesis chamber. No, well, we don't know if there is. He a makes a, a he makes a clear determination there and says uh, Krypton had its chance, and it's a little bit. As I said, a little bit uh, dark. Mm -hmm. And now he... A call back to that line. Yep, that's right. And that's another question. You know, a good death is its own reward. The Kryptonians get sucked in. Emil Hamilton gets sucked in. Lois gets saved because she falls out. Uh, are they are they dead? Or are they going to be trapped somewhere? Well, you'd you think know, that crashing your ship... Into you're crashing your aeroplane into a spaceship is going to automatically mean your death. Well, except that there is some sort of a uh, there is a uh, for lack of a better word there is a sucking going on here where they're all kind of get yeah, getting that, absorbed into this uh, nexus. But that would be the I mean the, the crashing of your aeroplane happened before the nexus or whatever you like to call it the Phantom Zone opened up so. I would assume that especially Hardy would have been killed on impact. But, yeah, we'll never know 100%. And Well, unless, they, unless we do. But yeah. you're right. And uh, Hardy, I would agree with that. He's right in the cockpit, right in the front. Mm. Um, it's possible that Professor Hamilton tumbled out the back and then got taken into the singularity. True. But where is the singularity leading? Because before, well, the when they got zone. sent into the, the Phantom Zone, it was a ship. And they were, only, they were in pods uh, orbiting Krypton. Yeah, but that doesn't that, exist anymore. The ship went into the Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone was that portal that opened up, and that's the same thing. That's the singularity that they created was a portal back to the Phantom Zone. And here we have that controversial kiss that many people said came too soon, but it's in thinking that he's just saved everything, he's thinks that it's all over. Uh, okay, there's people to be saved or whatever, but in the, in the throes of passion, I guess it was just a matter of uh, a, you know, a quick kiss. But It's also an extremely tense, nervous situation, and, yeah. and you've just gotten through a very stressful time, and, and I think it's just a, uh, a human reaction. reaction that they just kind of what they do. Embrace, that's right. Now he realizes Zod is still behind, and Zod gives him... His, this speech about you've ruined everything, you've killed every purpose that I've had, and now you've left nothing for me to do but to, you know, destroy what you've destroyed for me. And he admits to being cruel and, and, you know, and doing dastardly things, but it's for the greater good of his people. You know, he has a, a, a solid, straight purpose. And uh, now... You can see, looking at uh, Superman's face there, that he feels for him. Yeah.
This is a great line. This is a comic book line coming up. Uh, Clark says here. That's fantastic. <laughs> You're a monster, Zod, and I'm going to stop you. And the way they show him kind of hover up off the ground there, mm. it's, it's just great. Now, again, these are all buildings that have... There's no people in them that you can see. They've all been abandoned. They've all been... And even if there were people in this building, there's not much Superman could have done about what Zod does here. He knocks him into the building, and then he destroys it. It's not yeah. really Superman's... You know, he's not really... You know, causing the destruction of this building. And I think that was the first time Zod realized he had heat vision. Yeah. And then the battle begins, and, uh, you know, we'll see from much of it that Superman is not able to really do more than he's capable of doing. I mean, he's just been tossed around. And there he says it, either you die or I die, that foreshadowing of what's to come. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear, at least when I watch it, that there isn't really much choice in the matter. Um, he's going to keep doing this. There's going to be more buildings destroyed, and everything everyone's complaining about in terms of the gratuitous destruction is not going to end until everything is destroyed and everyone is dead. There's the 106 days before an accident, and then all it goes to zero. I love that. It's a nice little thing in there. And here he is, kneeling before Zod. I just never thought there would be a time where I would see superhero action the way we're seeing these days. Uh, this movie brought Superman and Kryptonian powers and battling to, to life in a way that I just never imagined live action would ever be able to do. And now Superman's realizing that his uh, any edge he had has kind of just been wilted away with the fact that now Zod is in full control of his flight abilities, takes the action to a whole another level. They're all above the above the city. So a lot of what I've been saying throughout, and we're now finally at that point, and you can see um, in many of the shots here as they as they go around buildings, as they go above buildings, as they fly near buildings, that uh, there are huge amounts of buildings that 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 layer off into the distance, that that are unaffected completely. There's just the uh, area that they're in. Obviously, is there's a lot of destruction happening, and as Steve was saying before. 
it's not really that Clark can do that much about what's being done. He's just trying to hold his own here and stop Zod. And, and he's kind of at the mercy of the way the battle goes. There was the Wayne Tech uh, satellite. There it was. It's interesting. I'm not sure why it happened, but in all of the previews and in all the commercials we saw, that little hailstorm of debris hmm. was going in the opposite direction. Left to right, not right to left. But uh, obviously the direction of the flight, the falls, necessi necessitated the, the change. And here we have them in the train station. And uh, again, we have this very controversial ending to the fight. But it's all Superman can do to hold Zod it hasn't got much traction, and it's not about this group of family. It's not about this group, this mother and father, son and daughter. It's it's signifying what's going to happen to everybody. It's not just this particular family. Although this is, you know, obviously very uh, personal in that it's conf very confronting right there and there. But it's an indication of what he's planning to do to everybody. And he says never. He'll never stop. And whatever direction he breaks his neck, he pulls him backwards first before he he does that. So those people are saved. While we never get to see them again, it's indication that it's, it's saved also everybody. clear. You know, watching the struggle, Superman keeps trying to implant himself there, and Zod keeps trying to move, and he keeps trying to. It's not. I I don't believe that there's a way he could. You know, I've, I hear people say he should have flown him away. He should have continued the battle. Obviously, the big complaint is the battle went on too long and there's too much battling and that the movie is half battle and there's too much action and there's too much destroyed and there's too much destruction and he needs to end it. And, uh, yeah, he can't... He, the, the, there is no... Like, there's no capturing him. There's no putting him in jail. There's, you know, knocking him out or covering his eyes or, you know... Whatever, there's, there's no end. Zod, when he wakes up or whatever happens next, is still going to go on his rampage. There's no Phantom Zone left to, no Black Zero left to take him to. Um, and the covering of the eyes we saw didn't work earlier. Yeah. They may have even done that on purpose. When the Kryptonians had Superman pinned to the ground, they covered his eyes. And it obviously anguished him having to do what he did. And he's not a sissy boy for hugging into Lois the way he did. And again, another fade out would have helped indicate here that this is... A lot of time has passed since what took place in Metropolis because he's kind of a, get this jokey sequence straight after that. Well, someone also mentioned that this scene could have been moved to uh, after the cemetery with Martha. True. Uh, so that you wouldn't go from something incredibly somber to something kind of lighthearted and then back to something incredibly somber again. And he tells him that he grew up in Kansas right there, so that's a bit of a yeah, way yeah. again. I think they already knew, as I was saying, I mean, once they... <laughs> yeah, once they went to Smallville and uh, located Martha and uh, the fact that they destroyed that house there, they would know that there was something there. Seems to me that there's a bit of a uh, uh, contradiction in how the flight might affect somebody standing near him because when he hears that Martha is in trouble earlier, he takes off from Lois while her arms are still around him. 
and then later he says, you better step back. And mm. she steps back 10 feet and he says, you better step back more. And then at another point, he's surrounded by soldiers and Hard Hardwick is standing or uh, uh, Hardy is standing right there and he takes off immediately. Um, I could see that kind of a blast off possibly, you know, knocking people down or something. But since it never does, uh, he suddenly he suddenly uh, thinks it's important that he makes sure Lois step away in that one scene when he flown away from her a couple of times already and it hadn't done anything. Hmm. We have a very touching scene here um, where we do kind of get the idea that Jonathan knew that Clark was going to be something great. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though he doesn't see him as Superman, uh, he, he definitely knows that there are there are great things meant for him. And the hands the, on the hips. Yeah, another which... of the young kids who plays uh, Clark Kent, another young actor, um, did a, a good job to hear. We didn't get to see uh, Superman with his hands on his hips hmm. as grown Superman, but at least we get the iconic pose in one way or another. And I think there's a longer sequence here of Clark Kent riding his bicycle uh, towards the Daily Planet, but obviously, it, you know, the shorter the better in some sometimes. And we get the globe in the again in the uh, foyer, and as Clark heads into the the elevator, it's. Uh, you know, we don't get to see his face, but it's a nice foreshadowing with the glasses and everything. We also, without the fade out here, uh, we get the sense of, with Lombard talking about uh, courtside seats to the game that uh, clearly city life is back to uh, some semblance of normal because they are having basketball games. Uh, they are able to go there. And the Daily Planet was right in the center of the destruction, which seemed to be either in the financial district or the downtown district or something like that. And they're able to go to a basketball game, and they're happy. And this is kind of an interesting sequence here with the two lines. Oh, yeah, I love Lois's line, welcome to the planet. It just has so many... It's a pun. He looks good in the game. Yeah, it was a very good ending. Uh, a cap there, uh, even with the controversial discussion and argument over whether or not the the passage of time was shown properly and, and, and how he should have handled Zod. I, I think, you know, one thing you can definitely say is that the writers made that decision purposely. Hmm. So it's really only them to blame that put them there. So if, if you go that route, you can say, yes, well, as far as the way it was written, Superman really had no other choice. But why, why did they choose to do it that way? And it seems like they... Uh, with all this talk of modernization and making people darker and what people want to see and how audience are pleased this but you know what pleases audiences these days it does seem like there was a purposeful effort put forth to make him kill someone and uh that's definitely i can i can definitely see that being something that offends superman fans and bothers people because it's something that they're so used to their character not doing and you know people saying about the whole kill thing that you know it's canon that superman does not kill that he's got this thing against killing well i have this thing against killing i wouldn't kill anyone either and i don't think clark 
has to have it stated that he doesn't kill, he doesn't want to kill. Nobody wants to kill unless you're a real bad villain, and even then, they don't think that they're the villain. Uh, the fact that, I mean, soldiers, they go to war not wanting to kill, but sometimes certain uh, situations necessitate uh, a certain action, and I think that's, you know, where they're headed here. And, and in the sequel, they, we may see Superman having to deal with, you know, the idea of, look, I need to find a better way next time. I need to think about not doing this again or being put in a situation where he could easily kill someone and decides not to because he's made a vow that, no, I'm going to try to anything I can do to, to you know, to, to make a different decision. Um, we have to remember that what we're seeing in this Man of Steel movie is a Superman who's been around for all of five minutes. Not an experienced guy, not a guy who's been doing it for years, not a guy who knows the full extent of his powers. We're talking about a guy who's just been Superman for all of, like I said, five minutes. He has little experience. Um, he's had the world against him, Kryptons against, Kryptonians against him. Uh, you have to think of this Superman in this context, in this film, not the Superman that you think you know from 75 years of history. Now, there's a spot here right as the S comes up where the music kind of comes to a crescendo and then stops for a second and the S fades away. Before they started the credits, I, I felt like there was a spot there where they could have put one of those um, Post scenes. scenes. You know, to see what might be coming next or something. And uh, Steve and I have talked about this before, and I don't think they knew what was coming next. I don't think they knew what the move was. I don't think when this was made, they had any idea there was going to be a uh, a bat fleck or that there was going to be a, a possible movie where they'd come together. And uh, I just hope, you know, based on what you were saying, and then they did say, you know, Snyder said at one point, it's something we hit, we're going to address in, in a sequel. And it's something that was addressed in the comics at one point when Superman was forced to kill. Even though in the comic it's actually much worse because he really wasn't forced to kill. In the comic, the Kryptonians were completely depowered and of no threat to anyone, and he still decides to uh, assassinate them. In this movie, he was in a situation where people were dying, the battle was going on, more destruction was happening, and it was never going to stop, and he did what he had to do. In the comic story, he decides to be judge, jury, and executioner, and he executes them. Uh, but... Um, I hope that in the sequel, people have mentioned to me, you know, what's probably going to happen is Batman's probably going to be the one to tell Superman off and tell him that he can't be going around breaking necks of people. And I just that just doesn't that doesn't sit right with me and doesn't seem like something that um, not only I don't think Batman would say that, even though he also doesn't kill generally. Um, it doesn't seem to me that we should have Batman being the one teaching Superman or trying to tell Superman what he should and should be doing. Mm. Well, there you have it, folks. That is our commentary, uh, Scotty and I, doing our thoughts on Man of Steel as we sat and watched it. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, there may be others coming from other staff members of the Superman homepage. But for now, uh, as the credits roll for the uh, movie, uh, Scotty and I will wish you all the best. Hope you've enjoyed our commentary on Man of Steel. And... Um, We'll sign off. What, any last thoughts, Scotty? Well, my favorite comic book movie of all time, my favorite Superman movie of all time, uh, I think uh, the depth, the maturity, the emotional levels that we reach in this movie are what stand it apart from other films like Avengers that I loved and put on uh, one of my uh, top lists for superhero movies. But this one, as I was trying to say earlier, so much more epic, so much more meaningful. And yeah, I'm a little biased because I'm a Superman fan, but I don't have other Superman movies uh, rated nearly as high as this. And uh, I'm 